Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Everybody, it's your rebellious kid wizard, Holden McNeely, and it's our time down here, up there. That's their time. That's their time up there. But this is our time, Jake. It's our time down here, Jake. <laughs> I love it so much. Uh, I will never betray my goondock friends. Goondock. We will stick together until the whole world ends <laughs> through heaven and hell and nuclear war. Oh, Good man. pals like us will stick like tar in the city or the country or the forest or the boonies. I am proudly declared a fellow goonie. Fantastic. Jake. Jake Young. We are doing our episode on the goonies. And, you know, a lot of times I like to have like a big kind of overall thesis for an episode. I really like to find some deeper meaning, some deeper thread. And so my thesis for today is definitely Goonies rule, adults drool, okay? <laughs> this is all this is, all right? This is a celebration of a movie I love. That's why we're doing this episode. I love it so much. I love the Goonies, bro. Get out of here with your negativity. Uh, I am a fan of going deep into theory and symbolism and what these movies are actually about. I Sometimes doing research, I'll have a big revelation where like the stars align and I'll see culture and society colliding into a cohesive statement being told through the language of film. One that, as kids, we didn't even realize we were receiving for the Goonies. Uh, there's nothing to learn. It's uh, <laughs> Pirates are fun. Yes. It's it's neat when a cute girl gives you a smooch. Uh, yeah, that big part's Big businessmen suck. <laughs> big businessmen are meanies. And uh, having cool friends ha to hang out with is nice. Like, there's no, it's so on the, it's just so sincere. It is just a movie that I watched as a kid every time it was on. I know I've said that about a lot of movies, but this one is more true about this one than any other one. That I've ever said that about. I used to, anytime this movie was on, I was thrilled. I would stop everything and watch it. It is a nonstop roller coaster ride for a kid. But it's also this. This is the deeper thing for me upon redoing, rewatching, doing the research. It's a couple things. It's it's a childhood I didn't have, and it's a childhood I did have, kind of all at the same time. Like we had neighbor kids. I had an older brother. I wasn't asthmatic, but I might as well have been. I was like not athletic on any level. Um, my one folly that kept me from having a situation like this as a young kid was that I didn't ride bikes. I was a tr atrocious mm. bike rider. I've been terrible. I'm terrible on every mode of transportation ever, that ever existed. I'm bad at it. And so wasn't a bike rider, but my brother was. He kind of had the Goonies experience a little bit with the neighborhood kids more so than me. But still, you know, I knew that him and his friends, I you know socialized with as much as I could as the younger brother as well. And I, I and then eventually I found my Goonies. We were older and we were like in a band and we were like experimenting with tobacco and illegal substances. But you know what I mean? It was still like I found my Goonies eventually. And I all I just love this idea of like a group of friends that are also interesting and different and fun 
and all just like, and then the older kids hanging out with the younger kids too. And that was such a big part of my childhood too, for sure. Like I was always that younger kid trying to hang out with the older kids, you know? And so I feel that so hard. <laughs> what that's like wishing my bro- a girl that my brother came home, you know, hanging out with or whatever. Uh, would uh, make would, out would with you under false pretenses in yes, a dark cave. Would revenge the nerds me uh, in a <laughs> happy way, in a good way. One of the things about the Goonies that I love is unlike, say, uh, a g- group of kids and like the same after school program or a group of friends from the same class, like they are connected by circumstances. These are the neighbor kids. Yeah. And you can tell because each of them are uh, hate each other in profound ways yes. and rag on each other constantly to the point where uh, if we do the four main Goonies, we have uh, Mouth. The sassy one who does bad impressions and celebrity references. Played by Corey Feldman, yes. Played by Corey Feldman that nobody likes. The Half the movie is people just being like, shut up, mouth. Shit, you idiot, mouth. Mouth, you sick piece of trash. Uh, we have Data, the Asian one, uh, played by Jonathan Kihui Kwan. Uh, uh, and a, no, a, a wacky mascot character with wacky inventions. Uh, no inner life. No, he doesn't get to kiss the girls. Some would maybe say problematic in hindsight, but I don't know. It's still charmed by the character. It's still very charming. His enthusiasm and creativity shines through despite the stereotypes. And then we have uh, Chunk, played by Jeff Cohen. Uh, he is the f- gluttonous lying fat turd that is left to die. Uh, I love Chunk so much. Left Stop. to die. Uh, crying, bl- uh, Stop blubbering. Stop shitting on my Chunk. I love my Chunk. Okay, uh, just his name it- is literally Chunk. <laughs> I love And then we no. have Sean Astin as every boy Mikey. Yes. Mikey gets a first name. Mikey is the default white kid. <laughs> Mikey. Yeah, I saw I saw your tweet too. He should have been nicknamed Wheezy. And that he is has, absolutely he is, true. Yeah, he's, he's, he's a he's sick asthmatic, he's asthmatic idiot. Yeah, that's and if thing. everyone shat on for their most glaring weakness, Mikey should be uh, bronchial shitlord or fucking <laughs> <All right. laughs> avioli uh, idiot. Um, Aviolas, whatever. The little where were tubes. you going with this? Where are you go? Why are you destroying my chunk and then, and then uh, uh, nothing? Else? I'm saying, as a chubby child, <laughs> the legacy of chunk, the truffle shuffle loomed over me, and uh, unlike. Actor Jeff Cohen, who got ripped, became a high school star quarterback, yep. and then uh, a class president at Berkeley. Uh, I just stayed chubby and weird. <laughs> you didn't get the motivation that yeah. he received, but that's okay, Jake. You're looking great, though, Jake. So don't, please don't sell yourself short. Even I would stab my own mother in the eye <laughs> socket for even a gram of sugar right now. My God. So not even um, candy, not even like a sweet treat, just the loose sucrose granules. But I feel like just to try to get this train anywhere near a train track from where it was, from where you've taken it. We live our uh, lives off the train track, Holden. The track is, we're from the other side of the tracks, just like the Goonies. Yeah, you actually bring me to what I was talking about, which is I always connected with the concept of being the misfit, the odd one out, the weirdo. And I feel like this was a group of kids that I could sit and hang out with once in a while uh, for this film and just feel like one of the gang. I feel like I would totally fit in with this group of kids. Like I have I have elements of all of them. Chunk, mouth, all of data even, you know, like all of all of the kids I have kind of elements of in me when I was growing up for sure. So it was like a little almost jealousy that I couldn't hang out with these kids and go on adventures. And then the adventure itself. I think there's a couple things going on here. It had like the perfect level of like shit that was actually kind of scary for a kid. Mm-hmm. Like the the gangsters were kind of scary. Like 
obviously when you first meet um, Sloth, it's kind of scary, you know, especially initially before that, you know, he becomes a friend to Chunk, uh, you know, and, and as well as all the crazy, you know, the skeletons and the booby traps and the all the crazy stuff, you know, even One-Eyed Willie's ship was like, and when he removes the uh, eye patch was like for a kid that was definitely like spooky stuff, you know. But spooky, not not n- never over the line, right? I mean, the illusion would have been shattered if they had left the famous octopus scene in. Yes, then you'd be I like, wish. "Oh, this movie is not scary at all. This movie is wish. very silly." I love that octopus scene. You can find it on YouTube. We'll talk about it more in a little bit. But I, uh, I, I just feel like it had like the perfect level of dangerous for a kid, but it's really funny. So it was just always thrilling. And even the the critics, like this, wasn't like necessarily. It did great in the box office. Not necessarily like super well loved by critics. They all kind of said it's like it's just a big dumb roller coaster ride for kids. And it's like that kind of may be true, but a damn fine one. And within it, and honestly, all those sentiments, as cheesy as they can be, and like whatever, but all that stuff about it being our time down here and their time up there, and 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 just just going going off into their own adventure and going into their own world in a cave, arguably behind their house. How dare you? How dare you uh, slip is, that by me? <laughs> it's arguable that it's it's at some point is behind the house. To, you know, depending on where the house is oriented. It's to underneath the, the restaurant. The cave's underneath the restaurants. Uh, yeah, I believe they that's how they came up with Burger Time. <laughs> I think it was in that cave. Oh, we'll talk Nintendo. about the Nintendo game. Don't think I won't talk about the <laughs> oh, Nintendo. Oh yes, we game. will also be talking about that. But yeah, I just feel like I it resonated with me so much this idea of this inner world that we had as kids that adults didn't understand. And that's like a trope done a million times in movies, but I feel like it's done so well here. Uh, and you just you believe it and you have fun with that ride. And I love just all the peril and everything uh, attached to it. It's just, so great and and uh, yeah and and I think it, it pays off really well. Mm-hmm. The whole sequence at the end is just great. Like yeah, I I, I just it just really uh, speaks to me and uh, I it's just such a nostalgia blast. I don't even know if this movie we watched it with the Sunday group. I think the people the stu- Sunday study group our, our Patreon thing fifteen dollars a month blah 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 blah. Uh, you can hang out with us. We'll we'll like do the thing on Discord where we like take in the subject and we did the movie watch right for this week. And I feel like the people who hadn't seen it before were charmed by it. Oh, yeah. I don't think it's ever going to be what it is to me, having been a kid growing up and having this be like such a gold standard of child adventure movies. But yeah, it just, I love it. Oh, my God. And the sound and the score, that synthesizer score that just is so 80s adventure movie. And now it's just so, I love it so much. I mean, I, di- I didn't know when we'd get to it, but uh, the soundtrack as uh, for years was actually kind of impossible to find because uh-huh. if you looked up Goonie soundtrack or if you tried to hunt it down, you would get the just compilation of singles like Goonies Are Good Enough by Cyndi Lauper or that weird eight arms to love you song that was supposed to play in anticipation of the octopus scene. Dave Grusin's uh, score does have an amazing mix of uh, a full orchestrated score with this very like synthy kind of uh, backbone to it. A lot of like uh, a lot of cool kind of uh, synthesizer organ uh, progression, some like 808 style, like synth drums in the mix, uh, especially in the, Fratelli's chase scene, which is how the movie opens up, which is an amazing, uh, an amazing little chunk of music to get you hyped up for an adventure. Uh, if we could, if we could get a couple of seconds of the Fratelli's chase music. 
But by the end of the movie, what we get is full on adventure serial orchestration that like when we see that ship sail away, it is full blaring triumphant trumpets. Our heroes have moved on from a dystopian poverty of uh, the 1980s where big businessmen are trying to take over small neighborhoods to build uh, golf courses to a reclamation of the glory days of the past, kind of uh, the same soundtracks that the Goonies' parents were listening to, the same that were featured on those Errol Flynn swashbuckling movies. Literally was a score yeah. from an Errol Flynn swashbuckler. So yeah. Just oh yeah, very, The very Adventures of so. Don Juan yeah. uh, by Max Steiner, who we talked about in the King Kong episode. And so like, it does have a nice little thematic through line in the music in this movie. Like uh-huh. this wasn't a very well done movie, by a bunch of like blockbuster filmmakers By at the height of their power. Masters of the summer block inventors mm-hmm. kind of of the summer blockbuster and then just demolishers of it. I mean, what a bunch of beasts. Steven Spielberg, Chris Columbus, Richard Donner. And I realize now I'm like, because now we've done Gremlins. Back to the Future. Home Alone. Chris Columbus is maybe my, one of my favorite filmmakers of all time. Yeah. It's like kind of crazy. With Goonies, we've kind of cre- uh, finished the 1985 Amblin trifecta. Yeah. Like this was Steven Spielberg at his height of cinematic power of like literally shaping a culture for years to come. Ah, just the name, the Goonies. It's such a fucking good name for what this is. Like, obviously I just have a big love for this film. Old reviews at the time were like, like, uh, and no, it'll take a second for you to figure out if the Goonies refers to the good guys or the bad guys (laughs) in this movie. I didn't even know it was the, the, I had no idea what the name was based on until we just did this rewatch where it's because the area was referred to as the Goondock. So that's why they call themselves the Goonies, which I had no fucking, <laughs> which is so funny that I didn't even know that. But I mean, I, I, this, I, this may be the movie I've seen more than any other movie except for like Jurassic Park. Like, honestly, I think I've seen it so many, at least like half of it because always, you're always jumping in. It was always an exciting day when I would get there for the title screen. Mm-hmm. Like rarely would I be there for the actual title screen of the movie. Uh, that's how we used to watch movies back in the days, kids. We didn't have Netflix. You fucks. We were we had to walk eight miles on our knees <laughs> to use medicine in a bathroom. What? All right, <laughs> I don't know. I'm just trying to really get uh, let them know how much harder it was. Mm. All right, uh, The Goonies is a 1985 American adventure comedy film co-produced and directed by Richard Donner off a screenplay written by Chris Columbus, who you may remember, as we said, from our Home Alone episode, also Gremlins, I believe Gremlins as well, right? Mm -hmm. And based on a story by executive producer Steven Spielberg, it is about a band of kids who live in the Goondocks neighborhood of Astoria, Oregon, and in an effort to save their homes from foreclosure, follow a treasure map that takes them on an adventure involving pirates, a family of criminals, and a monster man named Sloth. I think, by the way, it was also the, the several layers like it would be one thing if it was just kids running from gangsters Mm -hmm. it'd be one thing if there was this giant monster man that they all befriend and then ends up protecting them it'd be one thing if it was just this like crazy pirate treasure hunt movie with all these crazy indiana jones style hijinks but the fact that all three of them are happening at all times by the time you get to about halfway through the movie that's another thing i think as a kid that was just so stimulating and like fun like you just weren't could never be bored watching this movie i mean there's the there's the pirate threat itself there's the fratellis hot on their tail and then there's the perkins family uh 
with a Steve Anton as a Troy, uh, who is also like as a societal threat. So like the kids are kind of facing a literally all the things that like are scary to kids. There's like ghosts and ghouls and the supernatural. There's the threat of just adults who want to hurt you. And then there's like social economic threats, the things that make their parents sad. And within this one kind of journey of self, uh, fulfillment, I guess that's a terrible way of phrasing that, uh, you know, they kind of conquer all three and kind of emerge as holistic, like new kids together. Hell yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so good. And, uh, it also the cast, these kids themselves, and we'll get more into detail in their stories, but Sean Astin, Josh Brolin, Corey Feldman and Ramsey and many more. It's, it's just this killer cast of kids and killer kids. Some of those kids could kill. <laughs> Anyways, I don't know what's going on with me today. We'll figure it out as we go. Uh, so let's just get started with how they came up with the concept. I think I want to write a modern day Goonies, by the way, Jake. Mm-hmm. Would you do that with me? Let's yeah, do that yeah. together. Uh, maybe we'll give it some anime vibes a little bit. You know what I mean? We'll throw in some other influences. That's what we got to do, Jake. We got to take this foundation of knowledge that we've gathered over these many years and we got to put out, we got to come up with like a cinematic universe, I think, Mm -hmm. is what we actually need to come up with, uh, featuring all of these things together. But we'll get to that later. Uh, Here's a, here's, here's a, here's a working title. Okay. Uh, Ready Player One, but good. Yeah, I like that. Ready Player One meets... (laughs) Something good. That's what we'll say in the production. That's what we'll say in the production meeting. <laughs> I mean, it's a good product. No, please. I don't know. I don't want to. Dis- I actually kind of enjoyed the book, uh, the first book. I feel like I, I'm, a, I'm scared to admit that, but either way. Uh, Steven Spielberg is credited with coming up with the story. He was writing high at this point after his breakthrough with Jaws in 1975. He spent the next decade becoming the master of the summer blockbuster with films like Close Encounters of the Third Kind and the Indiana Jones films and E.T. He also had a lot of success as a hands-on co-producer, though, uh, movies like Poltergeist, and we talked about his role in Gremlins and getting that off the ground, how great that was in the 80s. Back when Spielberg was a child, he struggled terribly with dyslexia, making learning to read a real struggle for him, especially during his junior high school days. And this was compounded by a move to Phoenix, Arizona with him and his family. There's one thing you know about Arizonans is that you better know how to fucking read out down there. Oh, yeah. And you better walk right. (laughs) They don't like weird walkers down there. Uh, And a total lack of understanding of the disability in general during his childhood just led to a lot of bullying while he was growing up. Uh, And so that uh, drove him to making movies, home movies with a group of misfit friends who all had issues with fitting in at school due to a lack of athleticism, health problems, etc. He just found his crew and they went off and made a bunch of movies. Spielberg said, I never felt like a victim. Movies really helped me, kind of saved me from shame, from guilt. Making movies was my great escape. When I felt like an outsider, movies made me feel inside my own skill set. For me, that was being in a band in in junior high. And uh, I really found like I was like, I I just escaped in that because I felt so like so othery in in during that time in my life and shy or not shy, just afraid of getting into trouble because I just didn't want to deal with it. I just wanted to not exist for like three years (laughs) Or at least until I could get my driver's license and be able to drink and smoke. Um, until that time, I just I kind of wanted to go away for a little bit, <laughs> and so I found that too in creativity. Evolutionarily speaking, the fact that humans just have to 
go through puberty and not just like dig underground and be a pupa like a cicada is just a real oopsie doodle <laughs> in the grand scheme of life. A hundred percent. And so, yes, that is the experience that inspired him to come up with a tale about a crew of ragtag kids and the story for the Goonies. So that's when Chris Columbus comes in. Our screenwriter enjoyed drawing storyboards and making 8mm films in high school, much like Spielberg. He ended up studying at New York University's film school, and to make ends meet, he worked at a factory job while attending school full-time. And while on shifts, he pulled together a 20-page screenplay that he managed to get an agent with, and later said that, quote, saved my life from the, quote, terrifying reality I faced of having to live and work in that factory for the rest of my life in that town if I didn't make it, which again brings me to the advice I'll forever give to all you aspiring creatives out there. And I wrote it in all caps in my notes, hate your day job. If you don't hate your day job, you're not going to move forward. If you kind of like your day job, you're fucked. Mm. I actively find a shitty job that you hate that just makes ends meet. So you spend all of your time calculatingly thinking about how you're going to get the fuck off of planet shitty job. But if you're on planet, my job's kind of okay. You sort of just, you get into the hot tub and <laughs> grab a marg and just ha- and waste 10 years of your life. I was going to dispute this, but uh, no, you're kind of right. You're kind of a million percent right. Um, yeah, yeah. I would say, I, I guess you, but Dorkly actually sounded like a fulfilling-ish job. I, I don't know. Oh, yeah, I, but I also like dropped out of stand-up and stopped right. making original content for myself. Oh, there you go. I, I cracked the nut. That is, it's honestly just, it will, I know it's crazy sounding, but just please don't get a, get like, um, I don't know. Yeah. One of those kinds of gigs that makes you fall off. All right. Either way, I digress. His first screenplay was made. uh, This is Chris Columbus's first screenplay that was made was 1984's Reckless, which is a film about forbidden lovers, which he felt, quote, wasn't my best work. But after that, he wrote Gremlins, which put him in great standing with Spielberg, who collaborated with him to get the film made via Spielberg's production company, Amblin Entertainment. If you want to know more about Amblin, if you want to know more about Gremlins, you know more about all that stuff. Check out Gremlins. Check out also, I guess Gremlins would be the biggest one. I know we've talked about Amblin and other episodes. Gremlins, Back to the Future. Uh, our uh, Don Bluth episode yes. deals with uh, American Tale and Land Before Time, which yes. was other early Amblin hits. Like it's, uh, It turns out if you make the most notable nostalgia traps for uh, adult people in their late 20s to early 30s, we're going to talk about it a lot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I had to walk eight miles, punching myself in my own dick just to buy a pizza from a homeless man. Uh, To be fair, old Gus was, he got the crust just right. He put a little Parmesan at the bottom of the pan and it gave him like a little crunchiness to it. It Rest in peace, pour one out for old Gus, dude. Made the best fucking Zaz I've ever had in my goddamn life. All right. Columbus then moves to Los Angeles for work with Spielberg on his next movie, and that would be The Goonies. Columbus said, Goonies was just something Steven Spielberg and I wrote together. He wanted to make a movie that like that, and I knew those types of kids growing up in Ohio. So I wrote some of those characters based on friends of mine. Steven and I came up with the story, and I went off and wrote the screenplay for Goonies. And I just real quick want to say, man, makes me think, and it, I guess having it, you know, having this kid on the way, it gets me excited too for for those old days, man. When you had like just you were just a kid in a neighborhood during a summer, and you just like met up with these people every day and just went on adventures. Like, 
Ah, so good. Such a good, such such good uh, fertile ground for a fun fun tale for sure. Uh, Richard Donner now enters the fray. Born in the Bronx, he started out wanting to act, but was eventually encouraged to try directing via movie director Martin Ritt, who took him on as an assistant. His first work was in commercials and then television dramas in the late 1950s, and he worked on over 25 television series, stuff like The Fugitive and Get Smart, those kinds of shows back in the day. His first feature film was X-15, starring Charles Bronson and Mary Tyler Moore, but his breakthrough came 15 years after that with the supernatural horror film The Omen in 1976, of course, which came from the Exorcist popularity. Then all those movies started popping out. Prophecy, The Omen. And then America descended into a satanic panic, which uh, ruined the lives of thousands. Whoops. And weirdly affected Dungeons and Dragons, (laughs) which is weird. After that, he directed Superman the movie starring Christopher Reeve in 1978, but ended up getting fired from Superman 2 while making it because of issues with the producers. There was a lot of weird stuff going on with that story. We'll I don't know if we it. told it. We'll we told it. it probably in our Superman episode. It was we very might, bizarre. Oh, yeah. Was that a three-parter? Sure we, did. we probably yeah. did if it was a three-parter. I'm sure we did because it was so weird. He was he had a huge it's so weird to be a director of a hugely successful movie that leads to a big franchise and then to get fired from the sequel. I mean, like, in the Donner Cut. Unheard of. In the Donner Cut of Superman 2, it turns out he goes around the world again to turn back time again. So, you know, maybe maybe that was actually a good idea. So And the knows? song play If I could turn back time. It's like, what are we doing here? You know, he's like dancing while he's flying around the world. It was very weird choices going on in that movie. But uh Either way, he uh, he ends up uh, doing a couple of flops and then getting uh, getting over with Goonies. By the way, just a quick note about Donner. Donner goes on. I mean, I bet we'll end up talking about him again. He goes on to direct films like the Lethal Weapon series, Lady Hawk, Scrooge. We talk about I on Pop History Scrooge episode. We talked about him. Maverick. I loved Maverick. By we the way, we are uh, an elite brotherhood of people that just genuinely loved Maverick. Yeah, and- yeah. History will prove us to be right someday. It, talk about again. Talk about a movie that whenever it was on, it was just so easily easy to watch. I think that's why I loved Maverick so much. Periscope down. I'm a PDer. That's for sure. Any of those kinds of movies, I love them. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. What will happen is the technology will finally happen that, like, we can deep fake a version of Maverick where uh, weird drunk anti-Semite Mel Gibson will get replaced by cool, unproblematic Chris Evans, and then everybody can enjoy (laughs) it again. All right. Well, let us get to the cast, right? Again, I mentioned it briefly. Killer cast, especially when you look at, like, where all these, a lot of these people end up going. I genuinely think one of the things that made this movie possible is the fact that with his experience with E.T., Spielberg kind of got a hold of all these child actors, and he understood the power of kids watching kids on screen and kind of realizing for the first time that, like, child actors can carry a movie, Uh, Poltergeist as well is on the strength of the child actors that are in it and that kids and adults like watching stories about kids because every literally you either are a kid or you used to be a kid and with the right casting and with the right direction you can get memorable performances out of them um you know uh Corey Feldman was originally uh 
was originally met by Steven Spielberg as a, he was supposed to be Elliot's best friend in E.T. And he was like cast for the movie and he just got cut out at the last second. But he had maintained this relationship with Spielberg. Um, uh, Josh Brolin is the son of James Brolin. Uh, Jonathan Kehui Kwan uh, was a short round yes. in um, Temple of Doom. And so like this this belief and this trust in young actors, I think, was what um, Spielberg was really trying to capture with this movie. And that kind of speaks to how much of a summer camp energy the whole production mm-hmm. had. Yeah, they even talked about how like when they were when they had them all together, they were very unruly. It was a bit difficult to work with all these kids because, I mean, I think they were just having a blast. Yeah, I mean, the way they talk about Richard Donner as, like, this kind of parental figure who kind of, like, kept them together and, like, kept them encouraged and got the right performances out of them. Um, in the uh, DVD commentary, which you can find online, uh, you know, they as a group, the full kid cast, including uh, Brolin and uh, Martha Plimpton and Carrie Green, who are the girls, Andy and Steph, all in unison were like, who's your best friend? The lens. Like, kind <laughs> of like all these like little teaching moments and kid friendly ways of directing them to get the best performances out of this movie. Funny. Uh, I'll, I'll give a bit more of a rundown on the uh, on the cast, but I'll keep it pretty brief. because There's so many to get through. Sean Astin plays Mikey Walsh, and this was his first theatrically released film, and that's going to be the case for a few of these guys. He grew up in California, his mother being the famous actress Patty Duke, which I did not know that. His father is uh, John Astin, uh-huh. who we talked about previously as the original actor who played Gomez Adams. Oh, that's cool. There's a great article I found uh, called OK, I T- I'll Talk from the Willamette Weekly. Uh, where a local fisherman who was there on set while they were filming back in the 80s uh, says, uh, we'd be hanging out the dock and we'd see John Aston walk by and we'd all go doodly do snap, snap. <laughs> and he didn't think it was very funny. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when they don't think it's very funny. Um, his, uh, his first big part was a TV movie called Please Don't Hit Me, Mom. <laughs> And uh, it was him acting across his actual mother, Patty Duke. Uh, And four years later, he gets Mikey in the Goonies. Supposedly, during the audition, uh, Sean Astin, who has a gigantic online presence with uh, a very uh, close relationship with his fans, he will dish on like every aspect of his career, uh, talks about how during that audition with Spielberg and Donner, he couldn't get his lines right. And at one point, he got so frustrated that he just blurted out like, shit, (laughs) And that caused Spielberg to get up and walk away. And he was terrified that he just blew his chance to be in this next Spielberg family-friendly movie, not realizing that the kids would be cursing up a storm in this movie. Yeah, that's awesome. So wait, why did Spielberg walk away? Uh, I think he was just frustrated, but uh, he had a chance to like calm down and like they sat back down and he read the lines and uh, got through it. Nice. He is so sincere in this movie. It is like... There's a there's some real child actor stuff going on. A lot of the movie, they're talking over each other, which is very believable and actually is kind of endearing. But yeah, it works. You realize like how unlike a normal movie this is. Yes. And they're just all on top of each other. And I love that. I love those moments. I mean, again, because it, it feels like I'm actually with like hanging out with a bunch of kids in a neighborhood like uh, that really did happen, especially back in the day when we were all connected. Unlike today, where everybody's in their little boxes on their screens. <laughs> 
Wow, that's so deep, Holden. I used to jump off a bridge every day <laughs> to see, just to make sure my body could take it. It's uh, Your father would check for the welts on your body to make yeah. sure that you did jump off the bridge like you, you told him you would. I used to have to go out and find my own branch to beat myself with. When I was in trouble, okay? I would actually use it on myself while my while the whole family watched. All right? Even when I wasn't in trouble, I'd do it. Just for the joy of it. Sometimes mommy would only give me one piece of cake on Cake Tuesdays, and that was pretty rough. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but it's it's very... I just, If you rewatch the movie, it's funny to watch uh, uh, Chunk and uh, Corey Feldman and everybody just, like, yapping and, like, and cursing each other out and just, like, trying to ad lib over one another and then it's Sean Astin's turn to like say a line and he's just like you guys we have to find the map it's like our dads are in trouble he's just so sincere it's yeah, very yeah. funny I love it I love it and it's such a future Samwise uh, this is also Josh Brolin's first feature film uh, as Brand Mikey's older brother he also grew up in Cali and his father James Brolin was as you said a se- successful actor though he, they did stay in, uh, in a ranch away from the limelight for, for his childhood a lot. Uh, as a teen, he was part of a group of surfer friends called the Sito Rats and uh, that and referred to them as, quote, the children of rich, neglectful parents, or children of poor. So it was a mix. But we basically grew up the same way. I've never seen a group like that before or since. And that definitely helped him with this role, which I think is dope. Uh, uh, really, really cool, cool uh, uh, little addition there. He, too, did a couple of TV movies and guest roles on shows before getting Goonies. Then you have Jeff Cohen as my beloved Chunk. He too grew up in California, got semi-famous as a kid before the Goonies, actually. Uh, he, was a, he was a cute kid on a, on a game show called Child's Play. Uh, where I guess I think it was kind of one of those like ask kids kind of mm-hmm. game shows where like the kids always, you know, and the adults like, I can't deal with this fucking kid, you know, whatever. And then they hurt them or whatever. But uh, just before filming started, Chunk actually, uh, Jeff Cohen rather, got the chicken pox, but he didn't want to tell anybody because he was afraid he'd be recast. So you can actually, I hate this Mm -hmm. fact, and I'm glad I I learned this after I saw the movie because it grosses me out to think about. You can actually spot his chicken pox during the truffle shuffle. Uh, So check that out. Supposedly he was actually very shy about having to do that scene. And so Richard Donner tried to clear out as many people during the filming as possible so that he'd be more comfortable revealing his gross little boy belly. It was so funny in hindsight because we were all talking about how he's so like not even that. Oh, yeah, yeah. By American standards, he is (laughs) not even that like hilariously fat. Yeah. He is like kind of he is like a normal kid chubby. Yeah. Like totally it's funny to watch you're like oh wait not this insatiable whipped cream guzzling <laughs> like pouring milkshake all like so fat <laughs> and hungry that he's like he can't even bother to s- drink the milkshake normally he has to glop it all over his fucking face <laughs> oh whatever you love it jake fun fact about uh th- i don't know when else i'm gonna get this fact but uh a in the town of astoria in between the location shooting a uh, scouting and the shooting um a McDonald's was propped up right outside the window where Chunk is seen watching the Fratelli chase. 
And the reason why he slaps the pizza against the window is to obscure the reflection of the McDonald's. Oh, and that's that was funny. their workaround for that. That's nice because that's made it so much more of a moment. Also, mm. adding to the, uh, the the tragedy, the chubby uh, pathos of Chunk. I think it's fine. Um, Jeff Cohen prided himself on being a comedic actor, and he was uh, a child master of impressions. He did a he did a very uncomfortable Louis Armstrong that I saw on a BBC talk show when he was a kid. Uh, and he auditioned for the role of Mouth because Mouth's whole deal is that he does like, no, oh, wise guy, nyuck, nyuck, like kind of shticks. Uh, and they he was blatantly told, well, you're great, kid. Unfortunately, you're built more like a chunk than a mouth. So how do you feel about this role? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I, I like this little factoid. Apparently, he told the director that every role he had played up to that point either had him in a Hawaiian shirt or plaid pants. Uh-huh. So the director thought it'd be hilarious to put him in both. Which That's why he had that weird costume choice. And yeah, uh, of course, as you said, the fat jokes and everything kind of got to him a little bit and inspired him to uh, lose a bunch of weight and get into high school football. And that's kind of cool. And he becomes a lawyer later, an entertainment lawyer later. Becomes class president of Berkeley uh, with the intense campaign slogan, vote for Chunk. (laughs) Uh, his sister is also uh, an actor and playwright, and she is seen with her mother, uh, their mother, at the end of the movie as Chunk's sister and actual mom. Isn't that cute? And Donner had this to say about him. His acting had an incredible sense of genuineness of reality. He was Jeff. He drew from himself, and I think that's who he is now. He's honest and straight. I think that was in his acting and now in his law practice, which is very cool. And he's done quite well for himself in this law practice. Very neat to see. Um, Corey Feldman was acting at the age of three at a McDonald's commercial and had already appeared in the film Time After Time at the age of eight. But it was the uh, Friday the 13th, the final chapter, and Gremlins in 1984 that really got his career going before getting Goonies. I believe Friday the 13th, the final chapter, I think that's one of my favorite ones, if not my favorite Friday the 13th. And he's really good in it. Uh, Carrie Green grew up in New Jersey and her role in the Goonies led to a string of teen movies in the 80s and early 90s. She was like the cheerleader um, girl that kisses the boy. And we will talk more about that because that was definitely like, we, we were talking about it during the watch of it, but... So Sean Astin's character, Mikey, gets like she, like we said, kind of Revenge of the Nerds is him accidentally, though. Neither of them realize, you know, whatever. And she kisses him. And I just remember this movie being that first movie where it wasn't like I was horny, horny. It wasn't like, you know, talking about, you know, back in the day, like it wasn't like a spank bank thing. But it was definitely that one of those first movies where I was like, Girls make me feel funny. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Well, she <laughs> I is just like, like dropped very in. light. I, I, I yeah. don't want to get too intense about like a teenage girl on a, a very, recorded very podcast, but she's incredibly attractive. And, like, and the for ideal a, a boy, yeah, for a young boy. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and the it's specifically the convolute, like A, she's the older brother's girl, so there's like a little bit of like, weird familiarity like taboo in there and it's just it's so convoluted where they explain that like it's dark he's standing like she thinks he's his brother standing in a divot who and has braces mysterious like it's just such a weird convoluted thing but it's just enough for an actual child to think 
Maybe I get the kiss from the pretty right. lady. Maybe that could actually That's happen. That's possible. Yeah. No, definitely some weird stuff going on. And then the music on. plays and like, you know, Mikey's on screen. He's like, wowie, wow. So when you, as a kid, you're like, oh, being kissed by pretty girls is good. You should want It's a that. thing I should try. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It definitely just had the, the it planted some seeds. We'll say that. Uh, Martha Plimpton, who plays Steph, was born and raised in NYC, and her parents met performing in the original Broadway run of Hair. So she was modeling and acting at just 10 years old, first for a Calvin Klein campaign, then film. However, her first big hit was The Goonies. Uh, so, yeah, that's, and she was great. There's some about her. A lot of the actors in this, you know, you say uh, Sean is like acting his guts out. I feel like Martha Plimpton brought like a real. Mm-hmm kid energy like a it just there's a reality to her performance that again feels like oh wow i know these kids you know in interviews she is still that like bitter and sarcastic and like done with shit like it's clearly shined out through uh her characterization of uh steph um it's a, a funny little thing i found out from the commentary is uh there's a scene in the middle of the movie where kind of in a weird rushed fashion she just comes on screen and yells at Corey Feldman and is like, you stepped on my glasses. You broke my glasses. I can't see without my glasses. And then it's like never brought up again. <laughs> and it's because like at that point in the filming in a dark cave, Donner was sick of trying to like shoot around the glare and reflections from her glasses. That's funny. So they were like, what if she just loses the glasses? <laughs> Very nice. Uh, Sloth was played by Defensive End uh, that spent most of his career playing for the Oakland Raiders until he retired in 1981. And his name is John Matizak. And what a trooper, this guy. His makeup took about five hours to apply each day, and a remote control was used to mechanically operate one of the eyes. In order to synchronize blinking, a production member off screen would actually uh, count down to let him know when to to blink uh, so that the eye blinked at the same time. During the pirate ship stuff, by the way, talk about an unruly shoot. They were, the kids are just so warned so hard. Like do not fuck with sloth in the scene. He, it will ruin his makeup. Cannot get wet. We are in a giant tidal pool that we have built in the largest soundstage in yes, Hollywood. and the U.S. And for the love of Christ. Yeah, yeah, please do not. And then they immediately get him wet. Production had to shut down for a full week, and he had to completely redo the whole shoot day with that makeup application. Just an absolute nightmare from what it sounds. But he was apparently such a trooper, and he was so cool about it, and he was really cool to work with. And also, at one point, Sloth is wearing a Oakland Raiders t-shirt. Right. A little nod to his uh, football career. The scene where uh, Sloth picks up uh, Chunk for the first time, uh, Jeff Cohen was told, oh, we'll cut away before he actually picks you up, so don't worry about it. And uh, they did not, and so his reaction is very real as this large man just hoists him (laughs) to the sky. Matuzak is like a very, he's kind of a tragic figure. He, uh, you know, the Oakland Raiders famously, uh, according to sports urban myth, had like a bowl full of speed in the locker room. Mm. Uh, You know, he was constantly dinged on uh, fighting, Uh, you know, uh, his toxic relationships with his girlfriend who almost tried to run him over. Uh, He has a very heartfelt interview with uh, David Letterman in 1982 that you can find on YouTube that I really suggest you look at. Um, uh, Weirdly enough, he also has had uh, it's okay, whatever. I won't get into his like unique politics, but it's very he's it's he's a fascinating figure, but he struggled with drugs his entire life. Um, His stunt double, uh, Randall Widner, talks about how um, 
it was basically his job to kind of babysit him and make sure that he didn't like beat anybody up in the town of Astoria. And I know stuntmen love to like brag and make themselves sound like the toughest fuckers in the world. But uh, Matusak was a big kid with very few limitations about how he conducted himself. And he was a little too big to play rough with people. I have a black belt in five different forms of martial arts. So when we first started working together, he tried some stuff and I just punched him in the chest. From that point on, I told him when it was time to go and he'd go. He was taking a lot of painkillers, and then when you put a gallon of wine on top of that, you'd also have trouble controlling yourself at times. He was like a lost child in a lot of ways. Uh, another thing uh, Widner said about working with uh, Matuzak, uh, uh, John and I flew up, and there were only we were only there for a few days because there were some major problems with the makeup for Sloth. It's true. They had to go through several iterations. They would change the design on the fly and have to reshoot scenes after making adjustments to the... Uh, animatronics uh so there was nothing we could really do in front of the camera a lot i don't drink so i would escort john to all the nearby bars and i would get him home i was the john wrangler i just drink coca-cola and make sure he didn't beat up the whole place (laughs) good times the actors and uh and donner just talk about what a giant teddy bear of a man he was on set for sure how like a gentle giant and they all were he died tragically young at about uh, 38 i believe Mm. uh his Drug problems, uh, rep, you know, uh, issues from when he was uh, playing football and his he was literally his heart gave out. He was just too big of a man. Uh, all right. Then we've got Anne Ramsey played Mama Fratelli. She started out performing in a bunch of Broadway productions of the 50s and broke into Hollywood in the 70s doing several films. Probably the most prestigious actor, actor, actor on this project. And she kills it. Uh, she is fantastic in this movie, and uh, what also she goes on to do do uh, throw Mama from the train. She has really nailed that uh, mean Mama character. Huh? The weird thing is her speaking voice is actually really tender and really sweet. She almost sounds like a child in interviews. Nice. The way she talks, um, and you know, she was part of like a wealthy family. She was supposed to be like a debutante and part of like the social scene, and. Having and getting into acting when she did, it was kind of a scandalous choice. And then Hmm. having this kind of late career, uh, uh, I don't know about renaissance, but worldwide success was like very effective for her. Uh, Also, shout outs to Robert Davi and Joe Pentoliano, who play the other Fratellis. They actually did. Apparently, I don't know if they're being cheeky. In this, when they talk about this, they talk about having an actual caustic relationship. They hated each other before they, they even hate signed each other. up. All right, yeah, before yeah. they even signed up for the movie, they had beef. They're both known hothead Italian actors. Yeah, <laughs> um, Joey Pants. Uh, in the middle of his audition, he was reading, and Robert Davi literally just said, uh, "Hey, could you, uh, you know?" Uh, or he was, uh, I believe, the line was either Donner or Spielberg said something about like. Uh, you know, you're a little bit young. We were wondering if you could play older. And Davi just yells like, yeah, I can play older. He's wearing a rug. <laughs> just yeah. calling out because famously now everybody yeah. knows Joe Pantoliano is a bald man. Yeah. But uh, Pantoliano had to like panic and play with the wig and do like shtick and like just try and get out of it. Uh, they pranked each other relentlessly on set. Yep. At one point, Joe Pantoliano stole Robert Davi's license plates off his car. <laughs> At another point, Davi... Uh, nailed shut uh, Pantoliano's dressing room and he couldn't get out. Uh, and so that rivalry. I love it. They really had that relationship that you see in the movie. It's perfect. And they even bring back the wig thing when yep. it's time for their like total breakdown yep. at the end of the movie on the pirate ship. It's so funny. 
Uh, also, shout outs to Steve Anton, who plays Troy the Bully. One of the weirdest facts uh, that I think I've gleaned from doing both this and pop history. He also wrote and directed the film Burlesque, starring Cher and Christina Aguilera. And that is just uh, something you all need to know now as well. So he, uh, he, the Troy the Bully from the Goonies, uh, is responsible for the film Burlesque that no one likes. Some people like it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was kind of fun. All right, here we go. Filming. Principal photography lasted for five months, and there was an additional six weeks of audio dubbing as well. That's a lot of audio dubbing. And we talked about this while we were watching it. Was it just, uh, Jake, do you have any intel on that? I tried to. It's a little bit hard to find definitive sources. I feel like with the lack of merchandising and tie-in cartoons... Uh, the Goonies historical yeah. well is less exhaustive. I have a feeling that like, I do feel like they're going to do something with it. It's, I mean, it kind of, they already did. It's called Stranger Things. Yeah. <laughs> but like you still could, still you could do a Goonies like remake TV show or something now more than ever. Well, it's, that's complicated. I didn't know, we, I didn't know if we get into it. But, yeah, yeah. Um, there's stuff like uh, Chris Columbus yeah. says that he would do it, but he doesn't want to make a sequel. He wants to do a reboot. I think they should. I think it should Feldman be Feldman and Aston kind of hooked up together and tried to pitch their own sequel, but Donner turned them down, saying it would be too expensive. Donner had his own idea where he didn't want to make a sequel movie. He wanted to make a interactive theater experience where you go <laughs> okay. to an abandoned warehouse and find a treasure map along with a group of actors That's and explore fucking it rad. in real time. Yeah, dude, let's go. That sounds amazing. That I sounds want fucking that. awesome. <laughs> Just sleep no more, but with sloth. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, sloth no more. Sloth no more. God, it was right there. It was just sitting was in right front there, of me, and I didn't. Fucking pay, I didn't. jackass. <laughs> there was a Lego Dimensions tie-in, but that was just kind of a rehash of the uh, of the movie. But so all these different players all kind of have a their own different take on it. And so, uh, meanwhile, Donner himself is like ninety one years old. So who knows? If uh, he'd be involved at this point. Right. So right. it's all kind of complicated. But I, I would love to see it. I mean, there was a Goonies 2, but it was a video game. And whenever you're bored, let me get into that shit. We'll get into that real soon. But I do want to go back to this uh, audio dubbing. Do you think it was just maybe the, the cave echo? I think the cave, Probably, the rushing yeah. water, the kids talking over each other. Right. Rewrites and just little tweaks. They did a lot of reshoots to tie things together. Uh, once in a while, you can see the seams. There's like lines that are clearly dubbed. Yeah. There's at one point, uh, data is like ad libs a line right at the ending. The second ending that they had to reshoot in California because the original ending didn't have enough of a pop. Uh-huh. You know, he's like, oh, the octopus was so scary, even though by that point, everybody knew the octopus was going to get cut. <laughs> so I think it's just working with kids, working with all these complicated sets, rushing water. I, I think it just needed that much yeah, time to reflect. Totally. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Also, for the scene in which they all discovered the pirate ship, Donner wanted it to be a surprise, so he didn't show it to them until they did the first take. And they ended up not using that take because (laughs) Josh Brolin, was it specifically Brolin? who just was cursing wildly because of how shocked he was at the sight of it. They were like, thanks for fucking this up. 
you fucker. Uh, some of the movie was filmed on location in Astoria, Oregon, and does seem like a beautiful town, and they did seem to really love shooting there. Uh, the Walsh family home is an actual home on the eastern end of town. However, weather was an issue while shooting. There was tons of rain, or at times they had to hose down the streets to, to make it match the other shots because the all it was so rainy that when it wasn't, they needed a, to, to do that. The underground scenes, however, were all done at the Warner Bros. Studios in Burbank, California, including the pirate ship Cave Stuff, which was shot in Studio 16, one of the largest sound stages in the United States, which makes sense because that is a huge It is set. built to scale. Like That's one of the most... T- in a world where it's everything crazy. is CG'd and everything is like... Even the fact that they didn't even go with like miniatures and you're they're just on a full size ship is incredible. It was 105 feet long, that ship, and it took two and a half months to build. It was modeled after, like many things in this movie, Errol Flynn's ship in the 1940 film, The Seahawk. And we see an Errol, Errol Flynn movie in the beginning, uh, uh, a movie within the movie or, or early on. I believe they're also watching, a sloth is watching it later on as well. There's a lot of big Errol Flynn energy and big love for those those swashbuckling I movies. I will in say this, this the pirate ship as d- depicted, the doubloons, all of that, is just blatantly, that is a clearly a Caribbean-style pirate ship. Ah, uh, the right. privateering that uh, people were, you know, associate with swashbuckling adventures did not happen anywhere close to the uh, west coast of America. Uh, maybe, maybe Sir Francis Drake might have taken over a single Spanish ship, and that was, like, kind of fun. But that was more of an actual... Uh, conflict between nations, less so than independent pirates hoarding treasure. Well, it's funny you say that because the methods that they used to construct this ship were actually later used to refurbish Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean ride. So you were not wrong, Jake. Uh, It had to be destroyed after production wrapped because they couldn't find anyone who would take it, which is sad. That'd be cool if that thing still existed. There were various cameos from crew and family members in the movie. We already mentioned uh, Chunk's mom and sister at the end. Also, Mouth's father at the end was played by a cameraman uh, and director Richard Donner and one of his assistant directors appear at the end as the police officers arriving on the beach in the ATVs. Uh, I believe they're both wearing red hats. Uh, It's those guys. I made a joke during the viewing that they almost say shit like a gazillion times in this movie and that actually holds some weight. It was said 20 times throughout a PG-rated movie, but they got away with it because of the fact that it was always drowned out by background noise or the word was halfway cut off or in one scene, Data spells it out even when he's about to get smashed by a boulder. I also joked about how, wow, he had the sense to spell out shit instead of say it when he was about to literally like get crushed to death. Uh, Very interesting. So yeah, I love that. That's a really interesting workaround because... Even in today, I don't think you would. They would almost even allow that. I feel like they really got away with murder on the on the S word count. By 1985, we had Temple of Doom, right? Yeah. So they could have gotten the PG-13 that Spielberg himself kind of revolutionized with Gremlins and Temple of Doom. Yeah, but you don't want. But this, you don't want PG-13 for this. Mm. It's too young. Too, the, the kids are too young. Like the audience they're going for is too young. So the script was 120 pages, which is a lot. And this led to scenes getting cut out. We already mentioned it a couple times, but the biggest one, of course, is that scene right after they discover the pirate ship in which they get attacked by a giant octopus. You can catch it on YouTube, and there's a song called Eight Arms to Hold You, which was to accompany it, which we mentioned already, but I'll have to repeat it because I think it's so funny that they made it. And you can hear the song, too, in, in, uh, uh, yeah, on that YouTube clip. Eight Arms to Hold You was a song of the sound. It was a super 80s-ified song of the soundtrack 
that was to accompany the octopus attack scene, which is so dumb and so funny. There's a few shots where it does look kind of cool. It's this animatronic red octopus head. And uh, it's got like a snapping beak that you can see in underwater shots. And it's like vaguely threatening. But any shot where the kids are struggling with it, it's clear they just have a rubber hose around their neck. And they're going like, ah, Ah! oh, no. There was also a scene involving monkeys that was cut because they put men in monkey suits and it looked too Okay, okay. Okay, Let's get into this this shit. (laughs) There is an entire scene where because of uh, the Goonies playing with the water pipes underneath the Fratellis, uh, they somehow reverse, or I don't know what they do, they, through a series of shenanigans, cause two gorillas named Bonzo and Bertha to escape from the zoo, who then steal Steve Anton's convertible, as he is famously proud of, it's what he uses to yeet Josh Brolin off a mountainside cliff while he's riding a girl's bike. Um, and uh, these suits were actually created by Rick Baker himself for the Tarzan reimagining Greystone. Uh, the footage was thought to have been lost forever until 2020 when Mark Marshall, a former Amblin associate employee who was known as the Goonies Wrangler on set during the uh, filming... Uh, release them on YouTube and they are grainy. They It looks goofy as fuck. And honestly, it should not be in the movie. They were smart to get rid yeah, of Yeah, for sure. I, I I lament the octopus scene as well, but it, it wouldn't have made the movie better. I mean, it would <laughs> have added to just the sheer, me. like in terms of rising action, where like we start out with these like kids in a in an attic and then we end with like, explosions and rock falls and gangsters and pirate planks and all this stuff throw an octopus in there why not why not it was apparently included in the uh disney for tv cut on cable in the 90s i could also see not to diverge too much i could actually also see a good like dark knight return style the goonies get back together like it part two style the goonies get back together for like one final adventure would uh, would be kind of rad i mean i will say in the intervening years robert davi and joe pantaleano have only gotten scarier as human beings yeah that's true we could bring them back for sure so uh yes the soundtrack and score we already kind of talked about it so i'll just go over it briefly uh the big single for the movie was done by cindy lopper it's called the goonies are good enough with a big r like toys r us which just speaks towards its the time. Uh, song was originally supposed to be called good enough and against her wishes they included the titular goonies into yep, it Yep, that's good uh the music video is fascinating because it's, it's a 12 minutes long it's Traditionally, in the MTV era, it was released in two parts, and you could either watch the part one or the part two version. Uh, they, It's the same song over and over again, so I don't know. It's not that satisfying to watch all in one go. <laughs> Uh, but the sheer number of WWE wrestlers, yeah. or WWF at the time, um, it's kind of a retelling of the Goonies thing where uh, Roddy Rowdy Piper and the Iron Sheik show up to Cindy Lauper's family gas station <laughs> and they threaten to take it over with a big fancy deed. And uh, obviously Cindy Lauper's dad is Captain Lou Albano, the live action Mario from the 90s from the Mario Brothers Super Show. And uh, she finds a hidden map behind a painting and goes into the Goonies cave and they end up on the ship. But like, so many wrestlers at the ending happens when they summon uh andre the giant and he beats up everyone else because <laughs> at that point in wrestling history andre the giant had enough uh juice 
to be able to beat up all those other wrestlers. Uh, there's also a cameo appearance from Steven Spielberg. And uh, I believe it's, is it Captain Lou Albano who was in the original Girls Just Want to Have Fun? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Music, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's not just a cameo. Literally, uh, Cindy Lauper looks to the camera when she's caught between all the wrestlers on a log over a rushing river and goes like, somebody, Spielberg, help me. And then it cuts to Steven Spielberg watching the video in his office going like, well, Cindy, let me tell you, I have just the thing. Oh, no, wait, actually, I have no idea. Sorry. And then it just cuts back to the video. <laughs> uh, also, I will say it was Spielberg who asked Lopper to be the musical director for the film. And she actually got a then unknown group on the soundtrack. And that group was called the Bangles. And after this soundtrack, they end up hitting it huge with songs like Manic Monday, Walk Like an Egyptian. And they are also make a little appearance in that music video uh, at the beginning of the movie as well. Uh, so, yeah, that's really cool that she kind of had a finger on the pulse with the bangles there. Uh, Dave Grusin did the score for the film. His first film score was for a movie called Divorce American Style, which came out in 1967. And that same year, he did the score for The Graduate. He quite often used the theme composed by Max Steiner for Adventures of Don Juan, we mentioned before. That is a 1948 swashbuckling epic starring Errol Flynn. Uh, and yeah, that's kind of all throughout the movie. But Dave Grusin has done like 100 things, like 100 scores or something like that. He's prolific. He's done a ton of incredibly memorable pieces. And those every time, like when they're just getting into the cave, that like mysterious music that plays that like super synthy, man, that is, that is like a nostalgia blast for me. Just hearing those synth tones just takes me back to a time in my childhood. It came out in June of 1985, the movie that is, uh, and it came in second in the box office behind Rambo first blood part two. And eventually was one of the top 10 highest grossing films in 1985. It was treated as a dumb roller coaster ride for kids by most critics. But whatever is what I wrote in my notes. During the final week of shooting, by the way, uh, this is just gives you a sense of like what it was like to work uh, with this bunch. Donner felt the cast members had begun acting a bit chilly toward him. And it kind of bummed him out. And he was like wondering why. And uh, so when everything wrapped, he, Donner went to his vacation home in Hawaii and when he got there, he had found that Spielberg had actually secretly flew in the entire cast to party with him. The kids had actually been told by Spielberg to act shitty to Donner in order to keep that surprise a secret. Part of me is like, man, that's fucking awesome. And then the other part of me is like, man, if I was an older guy and I just made this movie with these rambunctious kids and then I just rapped and then I just got to Hawaii to like chill the fuck out and all those kids were there to party... I'd be kind of mad. <laughs> and then after they all like kind of had their nice moment together, the uh, icing on the cake was they had a large outdoor cookout with Alice Cooper. Yeah. Amazing. That's the other crazy thing is just the whole celebrity summer camp vibe of the uh, of the production, because we have uh, these kids hanging out together. We have uh, Spielberg at the height of his power. So like, Celebrities like Michael Jackson, Cindy Lauper uh, would all stop by the set and hang out uh, when they were filming on the L.A. set. Uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure was uh, being filmed in the studio next door. So Pee-wee Herman and Tim Burton showed up next to, uh, to watch the filming. Um, there was a moment where uh, Harrison Ford dropped by the set. And as a weird prank, 
uh, Steven Spielberg released like uh, bought a crate of this uh, tell all biography that was written about Harrison Ford and handed them out to the crew so that everyone from the cameraman to the actors were all like visibly holding it up like they were reading it while Ford walked by. Uh, it's just this weird feeling where like the ch- like the dream of the child celebrity where you get to hang out with movie stars and get like uh, uh, Jeff Cohen talks about how the whole cast got to have front row seats to a Michael Jackson concert. Uh-huh. And he knew they had made it because their seats were closer than Ricky Schroeder's. <laughs> it's this like, you know, I we think about people like Corey Feldman as these cautionary tales of like what can happen. You know, even uh, Drew Barrymore, the, the idea of the child star gone bad. There were all this fame, all this access, all this money, all these drugs kind of like. It's not good for a kid, but at this moment in 1984 and 1985 with these actors, they were on top of the world. They were literally living in a dream world while this was filming. And uh, a thing that I've I read Brolin say and a bunch of others is that it was like an awakening uh, later in life or even just in the years afterwards that like this isn't what shooting a movie is like. It's not all Peter Pan magic fantasy. This is something that was like honed and built by Spielberg to get like these performances out of these kids. Yeah, for sure. Uh, All right, Jake. Also, I'm just going to pass the ball right back to you and say, let's talk about the video games. Since we're in the middle of the 80s, there was originally a game that came out for the Commodore 64, Atari 8-Bit Family, and Apple II, which featured eight screens one had to puzzle through to escape to the next stage. Um, And then in 1986, Konami did two versions of the Goonies for the MSX and the Family Computer, but we did not see those games. Correct, Jake. We only saw Goonies 2 on the NES. The Goonies, as it is known in uh, Japanese as Goonies, uh, is a kind of a platform game that also kind of uh, is more kind of like a Pac-Man style maze navigation where you play as a little 8-bit Mikey And you have to dodge little gangsters, uh, collect keys, collect items. And it kind of just goes level by level. It's not that complicated. Uh, The real fucking thing, though, as a kid in the 80s and 90s, all over the place at Blockbuster and Nintendo Power, there would be ads for the Goonies 2. Or as in Japanese, Goonies 2 Furateri Saigo no Chosen, uh, translated as Goonies 2 The Fratelli's Last Stand which was a combination platformer, maze explorer, puzzle adventure game that was so goddamn complicated and is one of the most legendarily befuddling and weird games to navigate without a guide. It is, uh, we've talked about this before, but that 80s Famicom uh, computer game design where you need a guide or you just, all of your friends buy at the same time and through sheer like critical mass of everyone just knocking on every wall with every item, exploring every pixel of every level, figure out how to actually win. Uh, The game's plot involves Mikey saving a mermaid named Annie, (laughs) uh, who is uh, just this weird, if you can look up the sprite Annie Goonies 2, it's just, oh, there's just this naked mermaid girl at the end of this video game for some reason. The game involves tons of in-jokes because uh, the original Goonies was actually a huge hit for Konami back when it was a fledgling development house uh, to the point where Mikey was one of their beloved mascots uh, appearing in video games like YY World, which was kind of their, uh, I don't know how to explain it, like all-star platformer played along. You got to play as characters like Konami Man and uh, Simon Belmont. 
and uh, key to both games is the fact that you are hearing a looping version of uh, Cindy Lauper's The Goonies Are Good Enough in both games over and over and over again. If we can play just like a couple of seconds of that. I mentioned that only because the uh, that music was composed by Satoe Terashima, who uh, worked at Konami from 1985 to 1993, who also composed uh, insane tracks like Vampire Killer and Bloody Tears for Konami. So, like, that's just just a weird piece of video game history. But there is no Goonies 2 movie, Holden. And in America, there is no Goonies 1 video game. So every time I would come across this title, I'd be like, what are you? What are you? <laughs> yeah, it's can. It's got to be canon because we never got a film or TV sequel or anything. So there you go. And to get through the game, you'd have to be like, offer the candle to the old lady, then punch the fish. Like it was, and it's, it was impossible to play. And it's just this giant clusterfuck of video game design from back in the day and it's just when I think about the Goonies I think about the movie and then my mind immediately goes to sitting confused at a blockbuster being like Goonies 2? What? Honestly I think it's the presence of the game Goonies 2 that has made the promise of a sequel so pervasive among fans Yeah, like the idea has been planted since 1987 that there's a Goonies 2 that should exist. Well, they ended up taking it back. They took them all back. Over the years, Spielberg and Donner have tried to get a sequel up and running. Uh, Donner did have a story. Uh, Warner Brothers seemed to show no interest, though. So if you want to write a letter, write it to Warner Bros. Because they kept it from us. In 2007, Sean Astin told MTV that the sequel was an absolute certainty. The writing's on the wall when they're releasing the DVD in such numbers, Warner Bros., Donner later said a sequel will never happen, as many of the actors show no interest, including Corey Feldman, who said, no, there's no Goonies 2. I'm sorry, but it's just not going to happen back in the day. So then in 2010, a featurette called Making of a Cult Classic, the unauthorized story of the Goonies DVD, which you can find, by the way, it's out there, was released. And around it, Donner said a sequel was a, quote, definite thing. And, quote, we've been trying for a number of years. In 2014, Donner again said a sequel was in the works, and they were trying to bring it back for the entire cast and then uh, we're about to talk about the reunion event Spielberg said Chris Dick and I and Lauren uh, Schuler Donner uh, have had a lot of conversations about a sequel every couple of years we come up with an idea but then it doesn't hold water the problem is the bar that all of you raised on this genre uh, I don't think we've really successfully been able to find an idea that is better than the Goonies that we all made in the 80s so until we do people are just going to have to look at this one a hundred times get the brothers from Stranger Things you fuckers. I honestly think if you just want to tell a coming of age story, you just got to accept that it doesn't have to be the Goonies. Yeah. Uh, also, this is weird. A cartoon was supposed to happen on Cartoon Network weird. with returning cast members. That's weird. Wouldn't work. Yeah. Would have been better. <laughs> and a new group of kids. This never went anywhere. The same goes for a Broadway musical adaptation that Donner worked on a script for. Broadway, film, TV, animation. They had it all. They took them back. They took them all back. In 2020, Fox ordered a pilot about a woman who helps film students create a shot-for-shot remake of The Goonies. That doesn't go forward. Even that 
a meta thing about the thing. Anyways, uh, there was a reunion in 2020 during the COVID pandemic. So recently, this is bizarrely hosted by Josh Gad, uh, and is the but is the first edition of his reunited apart YouTube series. And those that attended were a lot of folks that were involved in the film. Uh, they include Sean Astin, Corey Feldman, Martha Plimpton, Jonathan K. Kwan, uh, Carrie Green, Josh Brolin, Robert Davi, uh, Joe Pentoliano, uh, Cindy Lauper, Chris Columbus, Steven Spielberg, and Richard Donner. I feel like I skipped Jonathan K. Kwan when we uh, did our actor thing. I will just say he uh, was. they, they fled Vietnam uh, during all that shenanigans you know <laughs> famous shenanigan the vietnam Fam- war a lot of hijinks <laughs> and he actually got his first big break you already mentioned his short round in the uh indiana jones and the temple of doom and just kind of caught fire with that plucky uh asian kid kind of character that he brought to the goonies uh they managed to raise uh, going back to the reunion they managed to raise over one hundred thousand dollars for no kid hungry which feeds kids and families in need in the pandemic after the pandemic so it was a really good thing it's a really cool thing you can check out on youtube by the way a fun watch if you want to revisit the cast uh as they talk about the original film and and whatnot spielberg's there it's cool uh, all right, I think that's it. Goonies never say die, Jake. So I'm taking them back. I'm taking them all back. It's their time up there, and it's our time down here. And I love it. This one goes out to all of you kids out there who knocked your sister Edie down the stairs and blamed it on the dog. There you go. It happened. Yeah, we didn't even talk about how just <laughs> that confessional scene is so funny, and it still holds up, I think. It is so, so f- All right, tell me. All right, I'll tell you everything. In the first grade, and then the whole thing with Pew, the worst thing, the worst thing I ever did. So I mixed up all this fake puke at home, yeah. and then I went to this movie theater and hit the puke in my jacket, and I climbed up the balcony, and then I made a noise like this. And I dumped it all over the side, all over the people in the audience. It's the worst thing I've ever done. Didn't he say like it's the worst thing I've ever done? Uh, all right. Anyways, I hope you, I hope you either had a really fun nostalgia joy ride with us, or I hope if, if anything else, this got you to sit down and watch the movie. It's such a fun romp. It's a great summer movie. Like just enjoy it. Can I, ha- can I share one more quote from the Willamette week article? Uh, this was Jim Furnish, a local fisherman who was there on set, uh, while the filming was done in Astoria. Please. All the local guys would be down at the Thunderbird Hotel and drink coffee. It was the only good hotel in town, so the important people were all staying there. I remember the kids were real bratty. They were spoiled little knotheads. They'd act up like kids and spill things all over the place. There was one old waitress there, and they were exasperated the hell, and she was exasperated the hell out of her. Uh, nobody gave a shit about those kids because they weren't famous. They were busy looking for James Brolin and John Aston and all the famous people. Well, I guess that's all changed because all those kids turned out to be famous too. <laughs> Very nice. All right. Uh, that's our episode on the Goonies. Uh, we hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to follow us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do bonus episodes every single week for just $5 a month. For $15 a month, we do the Sunday study session. Join us on Discord. We cover whatever we are uh, studying that week. Uh, if it's a movie, we'll watch the movie. If we're covering a game, we're playing a game. Yeah. If we're covering a movie, we're watching the movie. Super if we're doing fun. comics, we're reading comics. And uh, you get to help us. You tell us what to cover. You tell us uh, what we should not say on mic. You pay us to do work 
for us, and it's very fun. No, it's uh, it's uh, it's, <laughs> it's actually like incredibly it's, helpful, and it's we, very enjoyable. It's nice to appreciate things in a group setting. Super love just getting the, and it's a really fun crew of people, by the way. Like particularly a joyous uh, time. Uh, also, check me out twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. Uh, Monday, Tuesday, Friday night streams. Enjoy, come through, say what's up. Love when Wizards of the Bruiser folks come in as well, and we get to talk about that. All right, Jake. Uh, just follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young, and you can read all my thoughts and plops and uh, get little nuggets from the archives, from the research that I'm doing throughout the week, and uh, you know, get a little, get a little taste, get a little tease of what we're covering in the future. All right, hell yeah, and always remember, never stop bruising and keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. 